Okay, I'm gonna turn off. Uh, I'm gonna turn off the old uh, aircon now, and we can get started. Yeah, we're already recording for like six minutes here. So, all right, ready? Okay. There we go. Okay. <clears throat> Okay, hello everyone. Uh, welcome back to the Tokyo Jazz Joints podcast. It's episode 56. We're creeping very slowly towards that 100 mark, although at this rate I would say it would could take a while to get there. James, what do you reckon? I really was thinking completely the opposite, Philip. I mean, um, we've got so more already in, in our um, in our private document, uh, which I was looking at very, very diligently this morning to prep for today's podcast. And um, yeah, I think we'll reach 100 within the next year or so. No problem, especially if you make it back for another visit. Yeah. Private document makes it sound so so much more exciting than it really is. <laughs> I feel like there's no danger of that ever leaking to the public, and even if it did, it's unlikely to cause any um any 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 scandal. Let's be honest. Um, You'd have to be a Tokyo Jazz Joints um, uh, special deluxe member, and then you could get access to that and, and to all of our blue outtakes as well. I know that's <laughs> yes. proven to be rather popular with some of the listeners. So <laughs> indeed. Um, um, so listen, let's. Um, we we tend to always end on 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 maybe sometimes at least we end on a slightly darker note. So I think maybe we we'll start with um, another a uh, little bit of sad news that broke. I think just last week um, in terms of when we're recording, and that was the news about Bird Fifty Six. Yes, Bird Fifty Six in uh, downtown Osaka. Been one of my go-to places for, I would say, about 15 years or so. Um, there was a period when I would be going down to Osaka three or four times a year for work and for family stuff. And um, this was maybe a couple years before you and I started the project, Philip. And um, it was always, you know, it was like a set thing. I'd get my one jazz night out and I would head down to Namba and I would spend a couple hours uh, at Bird 56 hanging with uh, Natori-san, the owner. And um, so, you know, it's always been a pretty special place for me. I remember when we went together uh, the first time and then, um, you know, just, just now again on your more recent trip. Um, I had to say it was a shock to find out that he had passed on very suddenly, but also maybe not a surprise because I know, Philip, you mentioned to me you thought that he definitely looked a bit worn down when we saw him in April compared to our previous visits. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we... I if you, if you want to see some photos of Bird 56, obviously you can get them on the website, tokyojazzjoints.com. You can see a few images in the in the book. Um, and also I posted there last week uh, on Instagram uh, some images from different trips that we'd been. But m- m- most recently we were there together, as you say. And I mean, my one of my overriding uh, memories of that evening was just how smoky it was and how <laughs> I definitely was out of practice having not lived in Japan for a while because at one mm. point it just I think all customers were smoking and it just got so um mm. it got so heavy but the thing that really stuck out to me because when I had gone back in 2017 I had asked him for a photograph which he kindly obliged uh and um yeah, there's this portrait of him on the website and yeah, it, it was really striking to me just in that five or six years how much older he looked, you know, his posture and he mm. seemed to have lost weight and yeah, and I mean, he, you know, he'd come through a hard time as as 
uh, we know with COVID and things like that. Although hilariously, I think when we were talking to him, uh, he did explain his approach to COVID, <laughs> which I'm sure was definitely skirting the gray areas of, of what is legally well, allowed. Not that Rissan was uh, well known for having one of those bars that uh, had the Chinese characters on the front door that said open all year long. Like, And, yeah, and he meant yeah, he yeah. never closed. Yeah. Uh, he was there all the time. Well, my memory of it was that when we said to him, you know, he, he said, oh, no, I'd never been closed today. And then we said, well, what about during COVID? And he said, well, yeah, I just put this curtain up and pulled it over. And, <laughs> and just, I think he, I think the only concession was like slightly shorter opening hours. Um, oh, but he stayed yeah. open throughout, you know, which obviously in Japan was probably uh, feasible compared to a lot of countries that had stricter lockdowns but i mean just mm, mm. Uh, incredible place um i always remember as well um the first time going there the ones when i photographed it and one of these photos is in the book is the is the neon sign that said bird 56 and then this huge poster of marilyn monroe that was just by the toilets which had also gone by 2023 because mm. when he pulled it down he said there was a load of cockroaches and bugs behind it so he had oh. to get rid of it right so it, it really had that like you know, very rundown, that very mm. sort of down at home aesthetic that we really love. And it's a, it's very sad to think that not only he's gone, but potentially, I suppose, that Bird 56 will also go, you know? Well, you know, I mean, it's it's early days, but um, we got to wait and see because, you know, we know that there have been several places where the regulars in Japanese, the Joden-san, people who've been going to the bars or cafes for, for maybe decades, they'll often, you know, get some money together and maybe buy it off of the family mm. who might not want to keep it open or maybe pay off some of the debts uh, or whatever. And and Bird 56 was that kind of place. I mean, I remember one of the first or second time, maybe the second time I went there, but the first time I sat at the bar and actually was talking with him. And there were, you know, a couple of, of regulars. Um, and maybe for our listeners outside of Japan, they don't know this, but the, the Osaka dialect, um, when it's spoken in a very heavy way is very, very hard to understand, uh, for me at least. I'm not used to it. So so if, imagine if you're sitting in you know, a bar, you've got the noisy records on, and then you're speaking with a grizzled old master like Natori-san who's talking a mile a minute. I mean, he, he was very gregarious, loved to talk and smile. And I, I remember Philip at one point, um, one of the guys at the bar obviously saw my face and picked up that I was just not following the conversation because of his heavy Osaka dialect. And so the regular told, he said, you know, hey, Natsui-san, you got to slow down. Uh, you know, the guest here, he's he's not understanding your, your Osaka-ben. And Natsui just looks at him and goes, what do you mean? I don't have a heavy Osaka accent. And everybody at the bar just burst out laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and after that, I mean, it was really great though, Philip, too, because, you know, I mean, I think we've talked about this before, but that, that kind of feeling when you're at a, a jazz kisa or bar where the people are regulars, where they know each other, a lot of that so-called Japanese polite formality just drops away. And and I just felt so accepted and warm when they would make a joke like that. And of course, you know, again, for listeners outside Japan, the people in Osaka do have a bit of a stereotype for being uh, much more humorous, uh, maybe a bit warmer than their counterparts here in the, the eastern part of the country. Sometimes they get annoyed by that stereotype, but there is a lot of truth to it. It, it is a very warm place. Uh, people will talk to you a lot faster, you know, in, in, even in a jazz bar than they would here. And um, yeah, 
was just that kind of atmosphere. So I'm really curious to to see if somebody does get it together. I know that he was married. I don't know if he had any children. Um, and so, you know, let's let's keep our ears up. But, you know, coming on the heels of also, you know, Shidamaran closing um, a couple weeks ago, which we talked about in a previous episode, it, it was a bit of a shock, a bit of sad news. And, and you know, hopefully we don't have to do too many more of these uh, going forward, although I fear that we are going to have to. Yeah, well, I, I'm just, I'm still just having flashbacks there to you saying uh, people looking at your face and realizing you weren't following the conversation, and I was immediately going through the the many reasons that that could be, and I mean, on top of potentially an Osaka accent, but no, you're right. Like, I mean, it is, it is sad, and obviously the book, you know, anyone who has the book, you'll see that the the first page is a dedication to the owners of these places because they really are like you know heroes, and they do keep this culture alive. So I think, you know, in the spirit of that, and particularly because of some of the places that we're going to be talking about today, um, you know, it's nice to be able to dedicate this episode to Natori-san and also just all the owners, because, you know, I think to me, he's a kind of quintessential example of just that passion and that dedication and that drive that's kind of kept these places open from the 60s and 70s. And, and in some cases, particularly with the one of Bird 56, to have never been closed is just like a staggering um, achievement and a staggering thing to to think about, you know, over, over decades. Um, and actually, I'm kind of looking forward to to this episode because, to me, it, when I was thinking about it, it, it first of all, it, it seems to have fallen just by chance chronologically because you know we talked recently about my trip up north and some of the places that you'd been to, and of course we didn't go there together, but we were reunited back in Tokyo, and it was this very narrow window between me being up north me being in Tokyo, and then the two of us heading off very quickly after that down to, to Osaka and Kansai. And so um, it, it feels like a bit of an old school episode, this one, because we're just in Tokyo. We're just in three joints. We're not taking massive four or five hour train mm. rides. Um, and I was actually thinking, apart from the third place that we're going to talk about, the first two, I don't even really remember where they were because I was sort of in a, a bit of a blur, a bit of a haze, and we just got on trains and got off trains in those kind of like no man's land and like otaku and places like that so mm. should we kick off with with slow boat for sure for sure and and you're not um you're not mistaken it wasn't just because of your jet lag or being tired from traveling because um yes slow boat is in uh ota ward which is in the southeast of tokyo and you know for people familiar with this area I, i'm not sure it's very famous part of the city, and it's it's sort of like in a no man's land between Tokyo and Kawasaki on the way to Yokohama. Um, I think traditionally it was much more of an industrial working class area, so it's maybe not not the hippest place in town. Uh, but Slowboat is a real beaut. It opened right before COVID, so it was kind of strange timing for the guy. Um, very nice gentleman named uh, Tsunahara-san, who actually is from the Kansai region, is from Osaka, but he's settled in in Tokyo. I think for his family after retirement. And, um, you know, one reason that he was able to keep the place going through COVID is because Slowboat is located, as we've said about a lot of joints, Philip, it's the first floor of his house. And not just the first floor of a residential house. He actually had the house built with the first floor 
getting all the specifications to turn it into a kisaten. So sometimes you'll see people will like, you know, take an existing sort of structure and, 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 you know, move some things around and make a kisa in their front room or the first floor. But, but this one was custom built. So when you walk in, it's, it's just a quite a stunning space. It's small. I mean, it's only about what, 12 to 14 seats. I've got in my notes here. Oh, I don't um, know if but, it's even that many. I mean, I'm just actually looking at, at the little video that I took now. I mean, I think. There was another guy in there. That, well, there's two. There's two seats at the counter. I'd say there's less than that. There's probably only about ten at the most. Because there's mm. a, there's the there's the chair with the little table that faces the speakers, and then there's only about two or three more tables. So yeah, you'd be lucky to get twelve people, and I'd say a push, you know. And probably not a place that you'd ever really have to worry about that because it is located in this residential neighborhood. Yeah. And the feeling I got from when I first went to speak with him was that, you know, um, I mean, he did have his regular customers already, you know, from just three years because he's on the way between, as I mentioned, Tokyo and Yokohama. So you do get a lot of people who might stop off commuting between the two cities, like myself, actually. That's a train line that I would take. Um, so that's how I first stopped by there. And Philip, do you remember, I mean, he did not skimp on the decorations in Slow Boat at all. Um, I was immediately drawn to the really gigantic Korean-style chest of drawers that he has on the left side of the space uh, in between the two gigantic speakers. Do you remember that? And what he puts right in the middle of it, he made a little shelf where he puts the now playing CD or yeah. album on It's brilliant, right? Um, I mean, it and, and it's quite a new, like it's, as you said, like it's a new house, right? So it, it's got the staircase going up the second floor where presumably there's living quarters or, or somewhere to, to sleep and so on. And, and underneath the stairs, it, it, I mean, it's slightly awkward. There's this pillar in front of it, but like this beautiful, like you say, old piece of furniture, um, this gorgeous chest, like it's it's really large, and then the the speakers, and it has that kind of, you know, that clutter of bits and pieces that we're we're used to seeing. So predictably, I think there's a couple of cat. There's at least one cat or or some form of ceramic animal on up on top there, and then he's got a print of Guernica on the wall behind, and then <laughs> a couple of records have made us. There's a Wayne Shorter seven inch. There's a Bill Evans LP. Mm. And then, um, you know, some boxes of records out behind the counter. There's a few out on the shop floor. And um, we didn't, we, we had a bit of a chat with him, I think, didn't we? Like he, he again, it's, it's quite a, it's very much that, I'm trying to think of other places. I mean, it reminded me of somewhere like maybe even like Fat Mama and places like that, where it's, it feels yes, like a daytime yes. joint, right? It's an afternoon yes, kind of coffee very place, much right? so. Mm, very much so, yeah, like Fat Mama or Brooklyn out in yes. Shiba. Um, similar type of like space where it's like, you know, people in the neighborhood might come by for a coffee because yeah, yeah, yeah. they know him. And then you get the people coming for the jazz. And yeah, he's not open too late. I think he's only open until eight o'clock. And, um, and he also, you know, it's interesting because I, I remember he did talk to me maybe a little bit more when I went the first time because there was nobody there. Um, so he was, you know, turning the music on and off. But he was quite interested, to, of course, to show off his JBL 4331 speakers, which didn't really mean that much to me, but uh, our audio uh, fan listeners are going to appreciate that. It did have great sound. I remember when he turned the volume up. Um, and also, um, it seems that I think a lot of people in Japan, uh, they think that it's called Slow Boat because of the Murakami book, Slow Boat to China. 
Um, and he said, no, 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 it's not that. And he went to the record shelf. He's actually got about 2,000 albums in the place. I think a lot of them are upstairs. Um, but he pulled out a, a record uh, called On a Slow Boat to China by the Ted Brown Sextet, which was not a group that I was really familiar with. And he was like, this is one of the best jazz albums I have. And so he put it on. And he was like, so when I was going to open my place, I was trying to think of names. And I thought this one would be perfect. And, and, and everything that the way that he was telling me about it, it seemed like he created it in a very systematic way. It was like, I'm going to build a house. I'm going to shape it this way. I'm going to put the speakers here. I've got all of this decor, even down to the absolutely beautiful sort of standing lantern that's outside the shop. Um, I'm sure you got a picture of that when we left Philip. I haven't seen one of those before. You know, a lot of the older places, they usually yeah. have a sign with the key coffee on it or the Coca-Cola. I love those kinds of signs. But this one, again, custom made. It says slow boat with a silhouette of Miles Davis playing the trumpet. And then it's got in written in Japanese, uh, tasty coffee and jazz shop on the other side of the lantern. Very unique and very striking. I think you can't, I mean, for, for listeners who live in Japan or have been to Japan, like it, uh, and even if you've been to Japan, you may not necessarily have been in these kind of streets. It's, it's, it's hard not to, ex- it's hard to exaggerate just how pedestrian and how normal, like th- this is just a very normal, as you would describe it often, cookie cutter type street in a, in a suburb of Tokyo. And yet on this street, it has this little place, right? I mean, the rest of the street is just regular residences. Uh, It's Mm, just houses all along. And then just so happens to be that one of these houses is this little gem of a jazz kisa. And it's a beautiful place. And it's really, again, encouraging. I mean, obviously, a lot of these owners that have opened places that you mentioned, Brooklyn before as well. And we've been to a few other like Bird down in Kamakura. You know, they're, they're, they're opening their new places. So they are, there are new places that are opening. But obviously, a lot of the guys and tends to be guys again that are opening these places, you know, they're older men, right? They're, they're, this is how they're living out their retirement. And so inevitably, you know, there is a shelf life in terms of how long they can stay open. But I mean, it, you know, we can only hope that places like this, for example, may be something, you know, because it's a newer place, because it's maybe easier to run, it's cleaner, it's more profitable, perhaps, that, you know, they will be taken over by by family members or by younger owners, because it's oh, such yeah, a beautiful definitely. little spot, right? I couldn't imagine yeah, him putting that much care into it and, and, and being a gentleman who's, you know, a little bit more advanced age, not having some idea of that he would leave it to, to either his kids or his wife or and, you know, I mean, well, this is a, not someone I ever, or an organization I would ever thought to shout out on this podcast, Philip, but um, let's give a quick nod of respect to the Japanese Planning and Zoning Authority in Tokyo <laughs> for basically basically having zero interest in what people do with their houses. So you can open up a cafe, you yeah. can open up a business in your house um, anywhere, and uh, they will not come and, and require you to get a license or shut it down. And, uh, and shout out to Japanese neighbors. So you can put that beautiful lantern, custom-made lantern outside, and nobody's going to kick it or steal it, as would be the case where I used to come from. So, um, Yeah, I don't think I've ever been as nervous on, on the podcast when you said, uh, um, I'm, I'm about to give a shout-out to an organization I never thought I'd uh, shout-out in the <laughs> podcast. I, I immediately got this sort of chills. I thought, oh, no, what's happened? Has he had a, has he had a late life? conversion to uh, some political philosophy but anyway bad, i have a lovely picture of you 
Bad enough I alienated the continent of Europe on the on our last episode. So uh, yeah, I mean, I was flicking through some other podcasts there. I was flicking through through some other ones the other day, and I r- was looking back at something, and I noticed there's some other episode you've upset Finland as well. So like, I mean, it, it's just really a trail of destruction. Um, I uh, lovely picture of you asleep, actually, or not asleep, probably. Well, there's a bottle of ginger ale in the picture, so it may well be that you, you drank that too quickly. But uh, I think you just listened to the music. Although, funny enough, we were listening to. Um, uh, it was the Lady Day Billy Holiday album, which I know you're not a massive fan of, but you know, with my previous uh, involvement in in swing scenes and things like that, I was really digging that album. I have that one myself as well. But uh, you're you're not sure. such a fan, right? No, you know, I mean, vocal jazz for me is uh, it's it's fine. It's fine. No, it's no fine. Need dis- no need to disparage anyone further. It's 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 fine. It's good music. What a glowing recommendation. Well, look, listen. Uh, you know, talking about the two sides of, of a coin, really, we, we went from slow boat again. I, mm. I, I can't really exactly remember rough, you know, where we went or how we got there. But um, we ended up in, in, sadly, another place, actually, that we, we mentioned on the previous episode that has, since we've been there, uh, closed. But uh, couldn't probably have gone to a more different place, could we, than, than, than where we turned up after I slow mean- boat. It, it's it's just remarkable and very close by. It's uh, it was only a couple stops on the train next ward over in Shinagawa City uh, City, and it was uh, Jazz Snack Matsu, which is was unique. I hate to say it in the past tense, Philip. I still can't get used to it. it closed so suddenly, but uh, Jazz Snack Matsu was really unique because of a couple things. The first being that uh, Philip, I think we've explained this to our listeners maybe on an episode quite a few years back, but. In Japan, you have a lot of different types of drinking establishments, and one of them are called snack, um, and it's often written in English. And the reason for that is because after the war, when you opened a bar, there were really strict licensing laws, and they didn't want people staying out too late, et cetera, et cetera. So if you, if you offered some food, or if you offered what they took to be a snack in English, you could get your license as a restaurant. So this whole subgenre of bar called snacku in Japanese opened up all around the country, basically by people who wanted to stay open later. And all you had to do was put a little dish of beans or peanuts or whatever. You cooked up a small little dish. And then you would have your license changed. So, but we've never seen a jazz snack before. So when I first saw the big sign and he had a really colorful orange and yellow awning, you can see a picture. It's up on the front of my website. Um, I was fascinated to go there. And uh, it was a real dumpy little building. The first floor, jazz snack matsu. The second floor, a mahjong parlor. And it's owned by the same dude. It's owned by Hirano-san, probably in his mid to late 70s now. So he spends most of the day upstairs in the mahjong parlor playing, smoking, and hanging with his friends. And then when people come into Jazz Snack Matsu, he'll be down there or he has a college, a couple of college students who rotate, who run it at nighttime for him. And how, how would you describe, okay, we mentioned that, that Slobo had a very carefully beautiful uh, decor. How, how would you describe Jazz Snack Matsu's uh, interior uh, motif? I mean, it, it's so... I mean, it's it's hard to know where to start. I'm just looking through the pictures now, and there's no pictures up on the website yet. But they the the pictures from the most recent trip that I made will start to go up on the website too. And I mean, you mentioned the awning. First of all, I mean, I think it's probably it's probably one of the only places that we've been where 
it really looks like an old style Japanese place, you know, less even jazz, but like it would fit into any kind of old Showa, Shotengai, mm. you know, it, it's just mm. got that, even the awning, like it just doesn't say jazz kisa, right? It doesn't say jazz bar. It's just a very different vibe. But then when you go in, I mean, it's hard to know even where to start. I mean, there's a picture of you, first of all, you very bravely sat under a shelf, which can only be described as as groaning, as groaning with records. I mean, how anybody has the balls to sit underneath that shelf, I don't know. Well done to you. And the other thing I noticed about the shelf is that, you know, Japan is one of those countries where there's little hacks and little, you know, gadgets and little things that people have invented or created to like for convenience or for, and you, and you, you always think, oh, what a brilliant idea. Like, that would be such a good, like, you know, what? why has no one ever thought of that? Why don't we have that? But when you look at this place, the, 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 the solution to keeping the speakers on the shelf, I can only assume it's for earthquakes, is just like two massive, like, chains, just two massive silver chains that have just been wrapped around the speakers and presumably like bolted to the wall. So again, it's there's just a, a clumsiness and a real and then even the the COVID screen is like this big heavy bit of plastic that sort which, of just is made, hanging off two bits of string, right? From made the no sense at all in in, in a space that <laughs> That maybe is like eight to ten square meters max. In no, it's square. just it's insane. You know, where where <laughs> there's there's like four seats at the counter. Like maybe you could get six in the small tables, although you'd be sitting on top of each other. And it it's just I mean, first of all, again, yeah, in a country that's prone to repeated violent earthquakes. I mean, it's it's astonishing that 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 the place didn't fall down. The build, the whole building, not even just inside Snack Monster, I know. very, very, very rickety. When anytime somebody was walking up the steps to the mahjong parlor, you could you could hear it very loud sitting in Matsu, you know. And I, I would think that I mean, it's the kind of place where Philip, even I think you, with your unending iron stomach would have hesitated to order what was on that menu because... There's a 400, I, 400 yen spinach, uh, little uh, spinach starter there, I noticed uh, when we were in that day. The, 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 the 500 yen egg curry, extra large size, made me just want to... <laughs> God, I get queasy just thinking I, about it. I mean, I didn't notice the egg curry. It was amazing. Oh, <laughs> I mean, you look behind the counter. There's not really even a kitchen. There's just remember in Jazz Pepe when he just had that kind of open flame, like it wasn't even looking like a stove. You know, it was just like connected to the gas line. That's what. It, that's where he would like cook back there. And and I was just thinking, my God, like who would sit in here and order something like that? But but um, Hiranasan, the owner. Oh, okay, look, really interesting for all of these reasons, for the wildly <laughs> like you know uh, rickety decor, for owning the Majan Parlor upstairs. But but he also was involved in the local jazz scene. He was a big part of the Shinagawa City Jazz Festival. He oh, I tell you how I know that. I tell you how I know that. Because you really screwed us. As soon as we went in, you screwed us because you got involved in this conversation. And then what happened? What did we have to watch for, for 45 minutes? <laughs> it's because he remembered he remembered me from last time. That's why. And he was like, Oh, you missed the festival. Let me show you let me show you the current uh, edition. So so he put on a he put on a uh, a recording of it connected. Do you remember his um his uh his monitor, his computer monitor? That again yeah. is like 
up on up on some on another part shelf by the window that looked like it was from like 1991. Yeah, and, uh, right next to a VCR white player. TV <laughs> monitor type thing. Yeah, yeah, and a VCR. Yeah. So, um, but he was, you know, it was re- it was really interesting. I mean, a- again, a really nice chatty guy. Um, the most, and and probably, oh my God, I buried the lead again, Philip. The most notable thing about Matsu amidst all that was the huge blown up photograph of John Coltrane live in concert in Japan. And do you remember that there was a big problem with that picture? Do you remember? Well, I remember you telling me the story because we didn't talk about this. And actually, you know, uh, since since being there and Matsu subsequently closing, somehow a, a good friend of the project, Jerome, has managed to procure this photograph and it's now i believe in his house in france somehow but do you want to tell us and i'll post this picture when when the pod goes live but uh, do you want to tell us how john coltrane got so uh, damaged well so so the first time i'm there and this is before before hirano san comes down from the mahjong and i'm talking to the young guy who's who's working there as a part-timer and and it, it's very quickly clear to me that this young college student is very very new to jazz so he knows he knows a couple of the names. He's been learning. He's been putting on records, but but he doesn't really know that much. Then I see this big, gigantic, blown up photo of Coltrane hanging right above where we were sitting. You know, and it's got a gigantic gash in it. it. Looks like somebody took a big knife or even a sword to it. And so I'm looking. You're at embellishing. It. I think you're embellishing now. <laughs> no, sword. no, no. You can see. You can see. You can I know, see no, the picture. I know, but it's I don't definitely think not a pe- small knife. The, the people um, weren't running about with swords, were they, in the '60s? I mean, well, well maybe they well, were. You're, you're, but you're forgetting who did this. This was this was uh, done. The, the young point. guy knows the story. This was done by a, a bunch of neighborhood gangsters. Who, <laughs> you know, in those days, they would go around to shake down a lot of the local businesses for protection money. Um, anybody who's watched Yakuza movies will have seen this a million times. But uh, the owner was basically like, no, 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 this is a jazz spot and uh, I'm not paying you anything. Get the hell out of here. And so one of the one of the chimpita, one of the gangster guys got really angry and, and came back later on and just started slashing up uh, stuff in the shop, including the big picture of Coltrane before some of the regulars, you know, hurried him out. Um, I know that sounds like it's apocryphal and impossible especially when you consider how how things are here in japan today that would be pretty much unthinkable um for most of the country but but you know it was a very different time back then and i think the local gangsters and the local mafia groups they did control a lot of the neighborhoods so i believe the story and uh, as you said great friend of the show jerome uh was very uh had great timing to be there when they were closing and struck a deal um, and was able to take that back. I, I, Philip, I was really jealous because I would have paid good money to have that picture of Coltrane, you know? Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it's an incredible, it's an incredible story. It's an incredible relic or, or artifact. And it's great that it's been preserved because, you know, as we know, and I, I know this from <clears throat> even like, you know, after the tsunami and, and, and going up and doing that kind of relief stuff, people in some ways are not sentimental about stuff. You know, I still have a a little Buddha statue that I, someone had just dumped in the bin, right? You know, so things just get thrown out. And we know in Japan as well, like it's hard to get rid of things too and and hard to get Mm. rid of rubbish when when places close and you sell houses and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, it's very likely that in any other scenario that probably would have just ended up in, in the bin, not least, of course, because it's so old and it's also... Damaged. So damaged, and, right? Well, so also, you know, it's just, fantastic. Just, just imagine if you're if if you are one of these grizzled old jazz kisa owners and some wild eyed 
gesticulating Western man is offering you a lot of money. I don't know how much he paid for it, but for one of these photos, yeah, I think you'll take the money and sell it pretty happily instead of having yeah, to pay for the, I mean, you know, for the garbage man to come get it. But um, Oh, and shout out again, though, to Jerome, because he did um, explain to me, uh, because he was there when they closed, um, and it was a bit of a mystery because, you know, Philip, remember a lot of times in Japan, it takes a long time for the owner of a, of a building to negotiate with the tenant. Um, when they want to kick them out. Japanese uh, real estate law really favors the tenants. Uh, our good friend at Minton House in Yokohama is still there four years after he told me he was getting kicked out. That's how long the negotiations sometimes can take. But with Jazz Nakamatsu, it happened real quick. I mean, I think that they, they got notice and they had to get out within about six weeks or so. Um, they're totally redeveloping that street to build another monstrosity like they do all around Tokyo these days, sadly. Um, so it was quite unusual, yeah, because you know usually you do get that longer drawn-out period where people can go and say goodbye. We've said this before in many of the other places we talked about, but, but Matsu didn't really get that. So it was a real shame. I, I I was unable to get back there after hearing the news. So, but I'm I'm so glad that you and I got to visit and get some pictures though. Uh, but before, yeah, this. I mean, w- one way to get anybody out of a building might have been to put on that video. I mean, I'm just I'm just looking I'm just looking at <laughs> at the screenshot of the of the video, and it's just it's an older Japanese man reading out the introductions. That that was the start of the video. So we had to get through all that, and then I remember there being at least one female sort of acapella jazz vocal group and they were all wearing like quite large kind of ball gowns and well, you, you you love your vocal jazz though don't you and you were you were sort of feigning interest you know and or you probably just put it on me to be like oh right yeah 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 and all we <laughs> wanted to do was to listen to some music but the other thing that was noticeable at matsu that we both m- remarked on and it was one of those things that was like happening while we were there but it was only when you left you realized that there seemed to be like a constant stream of people coming in doing like transactions. Do you remember like people mm. coming in with like little bits of paper or money mm. or like things changing hands. And like, mm. to me that mm. felt also like very of a different time, you know, where, where like in convenience stores now, for example, one thing I noticed even going back since, since having been away for five years was the lack of interaction, even in convenience stores now where people, you, you're just putting money into the machine at the till. Mm-hmm. You're not even putting money onto the counter anymore. And yet in there, it was very much like people pulling things out of their pockets and like scribbling little things and bits of papers and little chits <laughs> yes, going back yes. and forth. Do you remember? Yeah, completely. And, and you know, it's 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 great because just, just as we talk about how the jazz keys are sort of from this bygone era, but but the physical location is often what they call the shotengai in Japan. It's just the local shopping street. And up until, well, even today, like I, I, on the shotengai where I live, uh, I would say half the shops are mom and pop shops. Um, Philip, three of them even use abacuses. They don't even have cash registers. My, I was in one with my daughter the other day and she didn't, she was like, what is that Chinese abacus? Why do they have this? And I was like, oh, this is a local neighborhood. There's no pay-pay here or anything like that. And being in Jazz Snack Matsu, you were right. Three different people came in. One who was some, there was some ruckus about a receipt. And then he had to get his hanko stamp and yep, get yep. cash and change. And you could tell that these were local guys who probably known each other for 40 years on this same local shopping street. And honestly, the thought that they're going to tear all this down to build another just hideous shopping development and hotel slash workspace. I mean, it made me want to vomit when they told me this news, Phil because it's happening all over the city. And unfortunately, sometimes um, not just the Shoten guys, but our beloved jazz joints, you know, are going to get swallowed up just like Mary Jane did, just like Pepe did, you know. So I feel like maybe maybe your shout out to the Japanese planning authorities was a little premature, was it? (laughs) 
<laughs> yes. It's a, well, you, you, hey, that's right. You, you take the good, you take the bad, right? So, uh, anything yeah. goes with, according to those guys. Yeah, build two whatever sides you want, of, wherever you want. Two sides of the yeah. coin again, isn't it? Really, like, exactly. well, look, I don't want to, I don't want to jinx it, but you know, having we, we've talked about Bird Fifty Six, we talked about Matsu, and then obviously Slowboat flying the flag for for newer places, but then. We're going to wrap up today's episode with with a revisit to a place that we talked about quite early on in the podcast series. One of the first 10 episodes, I think it's one of the most listened episodes as well. And at the risk of jinxing it, you know, it's a place that just seems to go on or live forever, really, or continually reinvent itself. Because after we had finished in Matsu, we made a beeline for Shinjuku. We were meeting a couple of people there, weren't we, for for a quick drink. And um, yes, we went yes, to long, the... Long-awaited return to Samurai in Shinjuku, yeah, yeah. Right next to the South Exit. And um, I had been back for the first time in several years uh, before that night with you, Philip. So I, I knew what to expect, but nothing too drastic, but definitely some notable changes. Um, some new flooring, badly needed. Um, a couple of new chairs and uh, tabletops, uh, a couple new curtains, all of the beautiful Malnekineko cats and all the wild and crazy decorations still in there. Um, but, you know, he's put in Wi-Fi. He's made the place non-smoking. It just feels like just enough of a cleanup uh, to make you notice the difference and to make you feel not quite so grimy by sitting down and touching the table. And um, so that was notable. And the second thing, you know, as we mentioned on a couple of previous podcasts, since the borders reopened again, you know, Samurai has been a, a popular um, spot for, for tourists for quite a few years. Um, I'd like to I think I could take a little credit for that by writing about it and introducing it to some Western journalists who did a lot of big PR for it because it is such a unique space. And it's in Shinjuku, which almost all tourists are going to go to at some point easy to find right next to the station. So Samurai's has become, every time I've been by there recently, Philip, I would say it's half, half the customers are overseas guests. Yeah. I mean, that's what struck me instantly. I mean, when we'd been there before, I think it had been relatively quiet. I know that we had also filmed um, for Mr. Jukes, uh, his promotional video as well. Like, so we did some filming oh, in yeah, there yeah, one, one sweaty right. afternoon. Yes, yeah, yeah. But like, Shout out to Jack. Yeah. It really struck me um, just the number of people. And like you say, non-Japanese, you know, and, and, and more specifically tourists. So, yeah, it was. I mean, I suppose in some ways it feels like, you know, that cleanup is, is it's created a space that's, I mean, I wouldn't say it's, it's quite like a, you know, sort of a jazz kisa for tourists in that sense, but like, it's definitely opened it up probably to, you know, it's the sort of, it's a good place to go. Obviously Shinjuku, very popular spot for tourists anyway. And if you yeah, want to experience a place like yeah. this, right, it's, it, it's a good, it's a good way to it's do it. It's more accessible. Um, and what's curious is that he still hasn't changed the menu though. So, you know, he or his wife or um, I forget that the haiku master who works with them, they, they, they have to explain the menu. Uh, because it's still written in Japanese. But I mean, you know, it's pretty basic. This is whiskey. This is cocktails. This is beer. 
you know, here's the snacks, you know. Uh, so they are able to communicate enough in English with the visiting tourists. But um, I would suppose that would be the next step. But, um, but Philip, there's one more very interesting change about samurai. And, and we didn't talk about this, so I'm interested to hear your perspective. Maybe I'm imagining it. But people who've been listening to the podcast and who did listen to that episode back at episode four, I believe, um, we'll remember that, that that samurai is a little bit of a, of a curious spot because of the owner's political leanings and previous things that he posted online and events that he hosted in the shop. And we're going back now about 10 years, okay? Yeah. Um, being, very, being very blunt, he espoused and he also hosted events that had a very anti-China uh, theme to it in, in a rather aggressive and disturbing way to me and to some other people. So his politics um, switched from being a very leftist 1960s jazz and avant-garde art to sort of the opposite side. Again, we don't need to go into that. We've seen that pattern happen again, many times in different countries, including Japan. But I noticed recently there's been none of that. And I, I can't help but wonder if maybe someone told him in Japanese, look, you're getting a lot of foreign guests now. Japan is getting a lot of foreign customers and they love your shop. Everybody posts about it online. Everybody talks about going to, oh, I went to Samurai, I saw the cat bar, I met the cat man, this, that, and the other. I see it all the time. Maybe someone had a talk with him and said, look, you if you're going to embrace this customer demographic, you can't be hosting a, a professor who's basically doing hate speech against Chinese people. You just can't do that. You know, because you're gonna, it's it's gonna cause a great offense. That's not a talk that I was ever comfortable to do. Um, it wasn't. I didn't feel as being a non-Japanese guest. It was not my place to do that. But but I just can't help wondering if somebody did have a talk with him about that, or he just said, okay, I'll keep my political views to myself and I'll just run this as a straight-ahead jazz bar. Um, I don't know if you noticed that when we were there because it was so crowded and we were only in for about an hour having drinks with some with some friends. Yeah, I mean, I I remember there being, uh, it's actually on the site as well, but I remember there being a sort of a, like a, it's albeit mannequin echo, but it's that kind of has this slightly nationalistic vibe to it with the Rising Sun logo and, and these two pieces of calligraphy down either side, which just seemed to me quite reminiscent of, you know, a lot of right-wing rallies and things like that. And I noticed that had definitely gone. I mean, I don't know, possibly his views have changed as well. Who knows? I mean, I think there is that strange thing and sometimes where people can compartmentalize two things because, I mean, we we struggled and we talked about this on the previous episode with the idea that you could you could have those political leanings, but also have pictures of Coltrane and, and, and like free mm. jazz musicians all over the bar. So it, mm. it is a strange thing that people can like square off two different things in their heads. And it could be similarly, you know, that there's still that political leanings, but, you know, tourists, predominantly perhaps Western tourists as well, coming to the bar are not, it's not seen as, as, you know, two parts of the same puzzle, you know, somehow those things are still seen as, as different, but whatever the reason is and whether or not someone mm. said something about it or not, I think it definitely felt noticeable to me that there wasn't that same sort of vibe. And I remember actually when we went, uh, the time that I photographed, there were little, um, there, there were little stands on the tables that were advertising one or two of these talks as well and like mm. leaflets and things like that too. And that all seemed to have gone. So whatever the reasons for it, like, you know, it did seem like that there had been that change. And I think that was certainly reflected in 
whether and, and whether you think that's a good thing or not, you know, a lot of the customers were were not locals, certainly, and in, in many cases, not Japanese. And that also brings up this kind of conundrum that we've talked about with other places like Shiramurin, for example, and, and, and some of these other ones that are, are better known, perhaps, or JBS even, where, you know, it is this case, and unfortunately it didn't work out with Shira Murin in that way, but I know when we spoke with, with Otsuka-san there, you know, he talked a little bit and there was definitely a begrudging sense of like, this is good for business because, you know, it's going to keep places like mine open, but also perhaps that sense that if there could be another way, that would be better, but <laughs> this is the only yeah. way, you know, and I think it's it's definitely that conundrum for, for certainly for some places in Tokyo where, as we know, like, things are not necessarily valued for their age or for the fact that they've been mm. there for decades. It's often a case of getting rid of them and making something new. And so there's definitely more pressure on places like um, like like Samurai and Pepe and Shiramurin than there would be on somewhere like, say, you know, Rondo that we talked about in a previous episode where, you know, there just isn't that same level of development, of, of gentrification, of change in, in that environment and stuff like that. So I do think it's it's a really interesting, you know, kind of conundrum when it comes to places yeah, like and Samurai. It, and it, it also makes, it makes me um, think a lot about my relationship to these places because obviously I've spent almost my entire life in Japan researching them and then trying to promote them and doing all the stuff that you and I do, you know? And then on the other hand, there's a selfish part of me that's just like, oh, God damn it, man. I wish there were no tourists in here. You know, <laughs> it's like, I want I want it the way that I remember it when I discovered it. In a sense, not so much because of a sense of like, I'm better than you. I found it first, but just because it, there's something so sweet and pure about it. And, and you kind of feel like, you know, okay, if you're going to get just wave after wave of tourist group come in, um, can it maintain its it's sort of like, can it maintain its vibe of being this place for listening to jazz? And that's not like a commercial endeavor. But, you know, who are we to tell the owners? It's their shops. They may, they may look at us and be like, listen, we've run these places for decades. We're finally making some money. Like, I mean, it's the first time we're getting waves and waves yeah. of people. And, you know, that 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 could be that could be the really big difference between them staying open or not. So, you know, it's certainly not um not up to us to judge. And and as in, about the other point as well, I feel, you know, I I know Miyazaki-san very well for so many years and, and I still part of me does want to go and speak to him about it. But um my my patient and long suffering wife has very sternly warded me off of that by saying, Listen, he loves you because you love jazz and you love jazz kisa and you created that bond. Do not bring politics into it. That's just not the way that an older Japanese man of his generation would look at it. You mentioned, yeah, compartmentalization is the main word there. It's like you have nothing to do with that. And if you start to bring it up, it's just going to cause a lot of discomfort. And so, okay, I took her advice. And you know what? She's probably right. Yeah, I would I would say so. I mean, it, it's, it's part of that bigger paradox too of, you know, <clears throat> Tourists and, and, and visitors flock to places for the certain character, but the more people that know about it and the more people that go and visit places, the 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 quicker that um, character and that sense of what made it appealing in the first place gets erased. And so then you kind of end up with a place that people are going to see something that ultimately doesn't really exist anymore. And so I suppose there's the, there's the danger of, of somewhere like that, you know, being so 
popular. I mean, I think probably JBS is, is one that's often quoted. I mean, I, it still kind of amazes me some of the stories we hear about that and how many people focus on that when they write articles yeah. and things. And yet yeah, when we yeah. went there, it was not like that. The, and we, you know, infamously perhaps, but we, you know, we, we had that first meeting where I pitched the project yes. in JBS and it was quiet. It was chilled. It was like a, yeah. an afternoon. And then, you know, within, I don't know, six months, less than a year, we were hearing these stories about, you know, people not being able to get in, people queuing down the stairs, like the owner, like, mm. you know, having a go at people and kicking people out and hating what he was doing and all these kind of things. And it is this thing. And I suppose it's accelerated by social media and by the internet as well. So it does raise some really interesting questions for the future of, of Jazz Kisa, certainly in places that, you know, are more accessible or that are more likely to be visited if you're only in Tokyo or Osaka or whatever for a few days, you know, but, but, but within all that, you know, we, we, we should probably focus on the fact that Samurai, as you said, still re retains that character. It's still got that vibe. It's a bit mm. cleaner. It's a bit smoother, but it's still somewhere that you can sit and you can imagine yourself like stepping out that door into like countercultural 1960 oh, Shinjuku. Shinjuku for sure. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Well, look, listen on that perhaps more positive note than we often end. Um, let's, let's, let's draw a line under it there, James. And I'm really looking forward to the next few episodes because again, as I said at the start, chronologically, we, we, we went out that night and I can't remember if it was, I'm pretty sure it was either the following, I think it was the following day, actually. It that was, we, it was the next morning. It was the next morning after <laughs> Samurai. Um, we met up on the, on the Shinkansen. I, I got on at, uh, at Shin Yokohama. We zoomed out to Osaka and we started a three day, uh, three day binge of jazz joint hopping, which took us all around Osaka, Kobe, and Nara. So I'm. It's so going to be amazing. I can't that. wait to get into that. It's going to be a four-parter. Oh, yeah. It's going to be three days, which is going to be confusing mm. to keep track of, but we'll do it. And in a couple and, of weeks' uh, time, we'll drop we go, that first before episode. Before we go, Philip, one one last anecdote about our friend Natori San at Bird Fifty Six. Um, after I got to know him a little bit, and then uh, I, I did ask him about that sign, the Ninju Mukyu, that you know always open every day of the year. And I said, don't you ever want to, you know, take a day off and take a week off and go traveling or go somewhere? And he's like, I travel every day. Look. And then he pulls out his laptop and he opens up a YouTube travel site. And he says, look at this. I'm looking at the penguins in southern Chile today. Isn't this amazing? You don't have to leave the bar. You can just travel through YouTube now. And he was really happy and smiling. And that's the kind of memory I will always think about this guy. It was just, it was so quirky, so fun, but so full of enthusiasm because you could tell he was really excited to talk to me about the penguins, man. And, you know, and I was just thinking like, this guy is just really, really cool and sweet. So I'm definitely going to miss him. And uh, let's keep our fingers crossed that somehow they can keep the bar open. Absolutely. I love that story. Great note to finish on, James. We'll talk in a couple of weeks time. Uh, great to chat you as bet, always. Buddy. Take See it. See you easy. later. Bye-bye. Ciao.